Winter was here, but we're just getting started on our Game of Thrones full series rewatch here on Post Show Recaps. And now, here are two of the guys who may not quite be cripples or bastards, but might be broken things. I'm Rob Sestrino. Here is Josh Wiggler. Josh, how are you? I prefer to go by Prince Porkchop. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, the pork here we chop are. That was promised. The pork chop that was promised. That is right. And we are back once again to talk about the fourth episode of Game of Thrones: Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things. Here on that's got to be the mouthiest title in any uh, in any Game of Thrones episode. I can't imagine that there's anything quite as verbose as cripples, bastards, and broken things. We'll be on the lookout. It's a lot of words. It's a lot of words. It's hard for the headline. Really tough for the headline. Yeah. So a lot to do here today on an episode that, again, moves some more pieces on the Game of Thrones chessboard here in season one. Yeah. A lot of things moving forward. Some escalation of the conflict between House Stark and House Lannister. Catelyn Stark acting on her suspicions against Tyrion Lannister. Ned Stark digging deeper into what he thinks is a conspiracy going on in King's Landing, may or may not have found another royal child, Rob. A bastard of King Robert named Gendry. So we'll talk about all of that from uh, this fourth episode, which originally aired May 8th, 2011. Josh, do you remember where you were? Where was I? May 8th, 2011. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, no idea, <laughs> you know? Probably, uh, you know, in an office at uh, 1515 Broadway at MTV News. On a Sunday? Doing something. Yeah, probably not on a Sunday. Uh, no, probably just like eating ice cream, playing bocce. <laughs> Yeah. You know, something like that. (laughs) Okay. We will get to all of our observations that have ramifications on the future in our spoiler section. But I guess let's just set up what happened in this episode for those of you who have not gone on past this point or don't remember what happened in this episode. Uh, We got to see Bran in his dream visited by a very mysterious bird with three eyes and then is carried by a guy named hodor for the first time josh hodor 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 ah got it i i misheard you at first uh no i feel like even if you've never seen game of thrones before you have to have at least heard the word hodor hodor is like the word that is most closely associated with game of thrones that i think is the most recognizable foreign sounding word to come out of game of thrones except for perhaps khaleesi i think that those are probably the two that are specifically game of thrones words that you gotta hear even if you're not a game of thrones person so you you've met the khaleesi already here's hodor a lovable giant who brings bran stark places that is his job here at winterfell as it stands right now uh or as it doesn't stand as it were uh and he is you know i think we've seen him already on the show but this is sort of his big breakout moment of the season at least up to this point played by christian nairn who is a dj in reality uh this is a this is a character that uh people like people like the hodor up at the wall we see John meet a new member of the Night's Watch. His name is Samuel Tarley. He is Craven, and he only has one person that has his back up at the wall, and that would be Jon Snow. Poor Samuel Tarley. You could call him Sam if you want. He's come to take the black pudding, according to Rast, who is just a jerk. This guy He's the worst. At, at Rastle Black over here. Uh, Rast just giving Sam the razzmatazz, as is Sir Alex. Alistair Thorne, the master at arms here at Castle Black on the wall. Yeah, we're meeting Sam, who seems to be fast friends with Jon Snow, even though they're very different types of people. Though I think that they've got similar backgrounds in a way. Not that Jon was ever treated quite as poorly as what Sam is describing, certainly from his father, which sounds like an awful way to grow up for that person to be your father and threatening to, you know, break your neck on a hunt and, you know, like, you know, pass it off as an accident. If you don't swear off all of your titles and go take the black, that's a pretty uh, that's a pretty terrible thing to do to your kid. But I do think that John relates to Sam and that they are both these people of like high houses that never really fit in. John being a bastard, a northern bastard, and therefore his name is Snow. So you're getting a little bit of a piece of Westerosi culture in the explanation for why his name is John Snow. And even if he was never really looked down upon in the same way that Sam.
Sam was. He certainly had to contend with his own fair share of like emotional abuse and just being looked at as sort of the black sheep of the family. Catelyn Stark has never been a big Jon Snow fan. So I think Jon sees a lot in Samwell Tarly that he can relate to, even if they are not both incredible warriors and incredible swordsmen. Only one of these guys is good at that stuff. And clearly it's Sam. Uh, so I, I just think that 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 is a it's a it's a friendship to watch, I would say, at the watch. As the episode title set up and we saw in the scenes with Tyrion and Jon Snow, cripples, bastards and broken things, that there is a kinship between the characters that you can put into those boxes. As we see when Tyrion has sympathy for Bran, ends up designing the saddle that he delivers to him. So uh, something to watch for in terms of people you could put into those categories in terms of their relationships on Game of Thrones. Sam certainly fitting into the category more of broken things i would love it for Tyrion lannister to design a horse riding saddle <laughs> for for you and i like i wonder what like you'd need like a like a holster for a remote <laughs> are Maybe we riding like a- the same horse <laughs> No, no, definitely not. We need our own horses. Okay. I can't get that close to anybody. I feel like you'd want like a, a satchel for your laptop on the side of the horse. Sure. Maybe like a, a satchel for a portable Wi-Fi device would be great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pizza holster. All those things would be very nice. Horn of ale holster. Right. I'd like some sort of maybe like unbreakable plastic bubble for when I inevitably fall off the horse as well. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was cut from the title because it was already too long, but it was originally Cripples, Bastards, Bubble Boys, and Broken (laughs) Things. Yeah, was the original name for episode four of Game of Thrones, so that fits. (laughs) In this episode, we see a lot of events from the perspective of Ned Stark. We see him at the small council meeting as the planning is going on for this hands tournament. Uh, Ned is going to have a uh, talk with Maester Pycelle, and Ned is on the case of trying to figure out what did Jon Arryn know before he ultimately died? And was he, in fact, poisoned? And so was he getting too close to some truth? And so Ned goes looking for the answer that maybe John Aaron might have found out. And that search ultimately leads him to a book and a blacksmith. A book and a blacksmith, a blacksmith named Tobo Mott, uh, whose name you do not get in this episode, but that is indeed his name. And his apprentice is a black haired blacksmith named Gendry, who apparently is pretty good at his job. He has like this bullhorned helmet that Ned Stark is pretty impressed with and pretty taken by. And Gendry shows a lot of his personality in this exchange where he's like, yeah, that's not for sale. And his I made this helmet for me. I made this for me. And his master is basically like, you know, that's the hand of the king, right? Like you you stupid idiot. You should be a little careful with how you're talking to this guy. And Gendry's like, I don't care. It's not for sale. It's mine. Uh, and, you know, in this moment, it's a it's a good thing that Ned Stark is a decent dude. Otherwise, you feel like Gendry could get the business. Like, that's not the attitude you want to take towards the hand of the king. Ned also has a long chat with Littlefinger. And Littlefinger explains to Ned that there are spies everywhere in King's Landing. I've always liked this scene where he sets up that, no, okay, these are some of Varys's spies. These are Cersei's spies. These are my spies. And you shouldn't trust anybody here in King's Landing, even your own people. You need to always be looking out over your shoulder here. But Littlefinger tells him about Sir Hugh of the Vale, who was John Aaron's apprentice. Is that the right terminology, would you say? Yeah, he was his squire. His squire. He was John, John Aaron's squire. And it's like a curious thing. Why is Littlefinger just like casually dropping this news that Sir Hugh or Sir Yu, if maybe that was his preference for how to pronounce his name, we won't know because the guy ends up being yeah. killed in this He's episode. He's not a Borg. He's not a Borg. <laughs> yeah. Resistance is futile, though, when it comes to uh, In the Game feudal system. Also, right. Yeah, we're in the feudal system. <laughs> exactly. Totally. Uh, but he's casually mentioning this guy, and it does give you pause for why did John Aaron die, and then this squire was automatically elevated to the status of a knight? Could something have happened there? And Ned also learns that John Aaron died fairly swiftly, uh, that his sickness came quick and took him out just as fast. 
past. That's what we hear from Grand Maester Pycelle. So yeah, we're really getting a lot of Detective Ned going on in this episode, but there isn't a lot of time to really follow down the Hugh rabbit hole because Hugh gets, uh, gets himself into a bad situation with a mountain. Yeah. Well, before anybody can question uh, Sir Hugh, he doesn't want to uh, talk about it. Uh, He ends up losing a joust to the mountain. And uh, we are led to believe uh, this is uh, some curious circumstances going on here. Yeah. He doesn't just lose a joust. He gets, you know, stabbed in the throat with a with a lance with a wooden lance and it's you know it looks like it's an accident you know it doesn't seem like that's something that's supposed to happen in a tournament but you gotta wonder you gotta wonder was that on purpose or is it just that the mountain is kind of this badass terrible killing machine which you certainly get a taste of here in this episode as well not just through the actions but also in Littlefinger meeting Sansa and Arya Stark and talking to them and introducing himself and also introducing the backstory of the brothers Clegane Rob we already know Sandor Clegane. We know him as the Hound. We've spent several episodes with that character already at this point. This gigantic man, the Mountain, Gregor Clegane, is his brother. And we get this horrible backstory about how when they were kids, Gregor Clegane caught his brother playing with his favorite toy, playing with Gregor's favorite toy. A, a G.I. Joe. action figure. A wooden G.I. Joe. Yes, I believe that was Flint because it caused a huge fire in which Gregor Clegane pins young Sandor Clegane's face into a fire and melts half of his face off and doesn't even flinch so that's the backstory between these two brothers who both seem like fearsome warriors in their own own right uh, a lot of a lot of hype in that backstory for some you know future problems to brew between these characters potentially not for anything i feel like that this episode of game of thrones may contain the most exposition of any episode in the entire series i mean there's at least like five or six times in this episode where one character character is just like telling a whole like okay audience now pay attention this is something that (laughs) happened that this is important and so listen to this this is a story that happened from the history of westeros that i'm going to explain to you now for no reason yeah you know there is it's a very dense mythology and i believe that i said in our first podcast certainly in the spoiler free section like there's a lot of great resources out there for game of thrones like a vast network of theory pieces and background and biological information biographical information rather not a lot of biological information that's what ned's reading about right now uh you know there's a lot out there that you can really just chew on but the the fear there is you're going to encounter a lot of spoilers and i think that's a very active real fear if you're a new game of thrones fan i think you got to really curate for yourself what you're taking in so sometimes the show at least in the early stage will really just like spell it out for you some of what's going on here they're gonna give you their own deep dive podcast at a couple points yeah oh that's where uh where my dad's (laughs) brother and my grandfather died right yeah, that's right. Oh, these are the names of all of these ancient dragons that are in the Red Keep, right? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. You know, just like a lot of a lot of little background info like that that you just want to you want to keep an ear out for as much as you can. Okay, and of course, uh, the Hound always keeping an ear out for that type uh. of information. And then the climax of the episode comes where we see Cat Stark uh, getting all of the houses of the Riverlands up in arms to arrest Tyrion Lannister after they happen to be at the same in. I thought you were going to say that the climax of the episode was in Viastothrak when Viserys was in the hot tub. No, no. I think we got close, but no, no that was not it. That doesn't count? No. Almost. Okay. It was an almost right. climax there. It was almost. Yeah. Nothing, nothing to say about Viastothrak. Did you like it there? Did well, you think I was, was going to go to Essos last. I was going to talk okay, about okay, uh, okay. You know, so I, right. I'm trying to stay on my Westerosi map. Got it. You're being, you're being geographically inclined. Yes. I appreciate that about you. Yeah, no, the episode does build to this big moment where you're seeing Catelyn Stark and her buddy Roderick Castle, the man with the mutton chops, the great, great facial hair of Roderick Castle. Uh, these two are headed back to Winterfell 
recall from their trip in King's Landing, where they've warned Ned about their theory that maybe something weird is happening with the Lannisters, and maybe they were involved in what happened to Bran. And Catelyn has walked away from that trip with the suspicion um, that Tyrion was the guy directly responsible, that this Valyrian dagger belonged to Tyrion Lannister. And as luck would have it, Tyrion is traveling back to King's Landing at the same time that Catelyn is traveling back from King's Landing, and they meet at this inn at the crossroads where Catelyn sends up the bat signal, the cat signal. You know, she calls upon all of these people who are loyal to her family. Uh, the house Tully is where Catelyn stems from before she became a Stark. She is a Tully first, and the Tullys are the royal family, or they are the most prominent family, rather, in the Riverlands, which is a region of Westeros. And she summons uh, these people who should be loyal to her house and says, arrest this man. He and his family conspired to kill my kid. And that is a very precarious position to leave Tyrion Lannister in coming out of this episode. A guy who I think we've come to like quite a bit in four episodes stands accused of being the guy who got this poor kid into his terrible situation. Poor Bran Stark. I don't know if we're buying it, but Catelyn Stark sure buys it. Right. He does not say, no, 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 no. Just wait. I just gave him the blueprints for a saddle. Why would I? That doesn't make any sense. Why would I try to kill him and then give him blueprints for a saddle? She wasn't there. And he's like, I made you a saddle too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no one attempts to plot to kill and then give saddle blueprints. That's just known. It is it known. Is known. It's, a, it's known. You wouldn't it's a known do that. Thing. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Saddle blueprints are a hot commodity, and you're not just going to like rattle those things off unless you really mean it. Meanwhile, over in Essos, we get to see uh, some of the uh, struggle going on between Daenerys and her brother Viserys. And uh, we mentioned Viserys, uh, you know, had some good times in the hot tub, at least for a bit, as he explains what's going on with the history of dragons in Westeros. Ultimately, though, I guess that there was a command that was uh, passed along to him by uh, Daenerys's handmaiden, uh, of course, that we know uh, from the bathtub, uh, Daria. And, of course, Viserys did not like this, and then uh, he comes in and tries to uh, slap Danny around. She does not take this well. We see Danny continuing to stand up for herself more and more, and she comes to the realization, as she's telling Jorah, that, I don't know if my brother brother is the guy who is going to lead an army to Westeros. Yeah, I don't know if like the blood of the dragon is quite enough for this guy. He seems like a little bit of a dweeb uh, that is, uh, you know, he just doesn't have the charisma. He doesn't have the temperament. He is impulsive. He does not seem to have an empathetic bone in his body. I don't know that this is the guy who should be sitting on the Iron Throne. Uh, and we even get this incredible, incredible scene that you mentioned earlier between Daenerys and Viserys, where we have seen Viserys be very cruel to Danny, and we've been seeing this sort of like slow thawing of Danny's feelings of uselessness and powerlessness around Viserys. We saw it last week when uh, when Viserys gets uh, attacked by the other members of the Kalasar when he gets like the, the the rope around his neck and everything, and Danny calls it off. But she has the power in that situation. There isn't even anybody around in this moment where she just unloads upon Viserys and has what I think has to be one of the best lines of the series up to this point where she says, I am a Khaleesi of the Dothraki. I am the wife of the great call and I carry his son inside me. The next time you raise a hand to me will be the last time you have hands. Yeah. How about that? That's good. That's a good job. That's a power. That's a power line for sure. So Danny is throwing it out there uh, that she is not to be bullied around by Viserys any longer. Yeah, Josh. With that, I would like to talk about uh, some of the things that have gone on to have even more significance post watching the episode. I'd like to get into the spoiler section here. Anything else that you want to say for the Unsullied? No, it's just so much fun being in this early part of Game of Thrones. How are you enjoying it four weeks into it? Yeah, it's very fun. Obviously, I really do enjoy getting to talk about some of the things that seem different upon learning more information. So uh, without further ado, let's dive right in. OK, let's do it. Let's sound the horn. All right. We're spoiled. Get, get out of here. 
get out of here. here. Leave even here. an extra horn. You got an extra horn. <laughs> get out of here. We're in the spoiler section. You are officially in the spoiler section. And oh my, it's great to great to have Samuel Tarley in the in the action now. Yeah, that's. I mean, I'm sure that there's another headline I could have led with, but I just I'm so I'm so pumped to have Sam. <laughs> the bromance is happening. Lord knows I love Samuel Tarley and man, is he a Craven right from the jump. And it's, it's great. Yes. It's great. Most stuff. Craven Sam here in this episode. Uh, so Craven. Yeah. So I'd like to start and talk about the saga of Sir Hugh, because to me, this seems like the ultimate red herring here in, uh, I'm not talking about Roz uh, in uh, the Game of Thrones. <laughs> right. So <laughs> Sir Hugh, this is like they the show brings it up as this great mystery. I mean, I guess that it comes from Littlefinger. So I guess we do have to be pretty suspect of anything that he's talking about. And he's asking Ned questions. Now, is he just trying to get Ned to spin his wheels here? Or is there a motive to what Littlefinger is working on? Because he's the one who raises the specter to Ned. Like, don't you think it's weird that Sir Hugh, the squire of John Aaron, got promoted to a knight so quickly as you know we've already learned that okay well john aaron was poison which is sort of i guess pointing the finger to sir hugh now maybe as we will come to realize that little finger was involved uh, with lysa in terms of the poisoning of john aaron but if little finger's ultimate patsy on this was that he was trying to point the finger to the lannisters in order to get the war of the five kings started why then point the finger at Sir Hugh unless they're saying that, oh, he became a knight. Then he had some association with Jamie Lannister in the Kingsguard. That's why he was able to have access to John Aaron to poison him. Yeah, I think that for Littlefinger, I think anything he can do to throw Ned off the scent of himself, I think is something that he's going to do. Anything that's going to make the Lannisters look extra fishy, even though they are lions, and the fish are uh, good friends. They're friends with the Starks. Uh, I think anything he could do to throw him off the scent is something that he's going to do. And I do think that it looks remarkably suspicious with everything that happened with Sir Hugh. But I don't think Sir Hugh, I don't think that he was the guy responsible for, for poisoning John Aaron. I can't imagine that he was in on Littlefinger's plan to kill this guy unless he did it unwittingly. Um, I just don't imagine Littlefinger exposing himself quite like that uh but at the same time then the death of of sir hugh is very serendipitous right like it's just very lucky that this man gets killed in this moment here and just fuels the suspicion further but i think with the way that Littlefinger is hyping up the mountain get hyped uh to sansa and Arya, i wonder if that's like any kind of like subtle connecting you know moment between Littlefinger and Gregor Clegane. Like, can you imagine the scenario where Littlefinger went to Gregor Clegane? Is like, hey, you want to make some extra money? Just kill this guy. It's something you like to do anyway. But this is something the saga of Sir Hugh, which is never going to be mentioned again. I don't believe it's something that's really explored in the books. Do you happen to know that offhand? I don't really remember Sir Hugh being a huge deal. I could be wrong about that, but I don't recall him being like a master uh, player in uh, in the in the story here moving forward. No, but the show is setting him up as, oh, here's the guy who has all the answers. And then almost like he was some sort of true patsy, he ends up getting taken out in the joust, which I don't believe that is something that in these tournaments happens on the regular that we don't lose that many people uh competing in in these sorts of tournaments right at least not with like such murderous proficiency like that was like an expertly delivered kill strike uh, from Gregor Clegane I don't think that happens too often like that felt targeted uh, but I, I do think like you could imagine even the scenario where the Lannisters have their own suspicions about what could have possibly happened here and maybe they're a little bit worried or concerned about Sir Hugh and it's really clear that Ned is starting to poke around like he even has that moment when Ned and 
and Jory Castle go to the armory where they find Gendry. And uh, Jory's like, you sure you want to just be walking around in broad daylight? And Ned's like, yeah, let them look. Like, they aren't really doing this secret, you know, secretly. Like, there's really no covert aspect to this. So maybe the Lannisters were, like, tweaking out that maybe Sir Hugh does know something, and maybe it's going to somehow implicate one of us if one of us is involved. You don't even really imagine that the Lannisters are talking too well with each other. So there's a lot of chaos going on here uh, that makes it hard to really see the forest for the trees. Do you think that Sir Hugh was murdered? I do think Sir Hugh was murdered. I don't think that this was just an accident. I think that the gods of Game of thrones and westeros have a great sense of humor but that would just be too cosmic for me for for sir hugh to just get taken out like this purely on accident uh by somebody who is very loyal to the lannisters to begin with in gregor clegane but i think also somebody who could probably be bought by Littlefinger. so i think that you could you could see it in either direction as a possible answer and he wouldn't tell the lannisters that Littlefinger was paying him off to kill sir hugh not if he's making like decent money out of it you know if it's just like an easy thing that he could do and he just gets to kill people i think that he'd be fine with that but what did that buy Littlefinger in terms of killing off sir hugh I think it makes things look more suspicious. I think it makes things look more like the Lannisters have something to hide. And I think that the the more that Littlefinger can fabricate that narrative and embellish that narrative, the more tense things are going to get between the Starks and the Lannisters. And the likelier and likelier it's going to be that some form of war or conflict breaks out between the North and the South. And Littlefinger can profit from that. So Pycelle ends up saying to Ned that uh, maybe be you know this could be a poison john aaron did die very quickly but he cites poison as being a woman's weapon we hear that from time to time on game of thrones it also says it's also the weapon of eunuchs i'm not sure necessarily uh why, how many eunuchs there are and why poison is their chosen weapon they but love poison josh i have a list from the game of thrones wiki of the characters that are poisoned on game of thrones do you want to see if the poison is a woman's weapon theory holds true yeah let's hear it let's go through the poison victims for sure quick list okay so john aaron so that was from lisa aaron so in this case i would say yes poison was a woman's weapon there i'm feeling it okay twice daenerys targaryen was a tempted victim of poison not by women, I don't think. Yes. Uh, the first was a wine cellar that Robert Baratheon tried to get to poison her. And the yeah, second, we're on our way to that moment. Right. The second was organized by the warlocks in Carth. So uh, they were not women. They were not women. No, they were not. They love their, uh, their shade of the night. They love that blue stuff. Maester Crescent is going to attempt to poison Melisandre in the season two premiere. Okay, yeah, I remember that. At Harrenhal, uh, Jack and Hagar is going to uh, use a dart dipped in poison. Now, are we counting weapons dipped in poison? I think that that counts, right? I mean, it's still poison. Like, the goal is to deliver a poisonous blow. Yeah. Uh, we are going to see Joffrey poisoned at his wedding. Now, are you going to say that that was uh, Lady Olena? Oh, that's directly Lady of okay, so she's, okay. she's She just straight up does it. Yeah, she yeah, gets yeah. credit on that one. Oh, yeah. Uh, we're going to see uh, the mountain himself get poisoned after a duel with the Red Viper. So that is not a woman's weapon. No, but the sand snakes love poison. Yes. So the sand snakes, uh, we see Bronn is going to be poisoned from the sand snakes. They are also going to poison Marcella Baratheon. So uh, all, all poison there. And then finally, uh, Arya Stark is going to poison all of the phrase, uh, So uh, as a woman. So that holds up. So I'd say it's probably about 50-50 on the poisoning men and women. <laughs> A lot of people are poisoned on Game of Thrones is the point. Also, and zero eunuchs are poisoning people. So let's just <laughs> that is just a stereotype. Yeah, that feels unfair to just like toss that out. Uh, especially I don't think you imagine many unsullied are poisoning anybody. They're really just hopping right into the conflict. Varys didn't poison anybody. Theon didn't poison anybody. There's a surprising amount of eunuchs on this show. 
Yeah, Varys doesn't do a lot of poisoning. He doesn't do a lot of direct killing uh, either, to my to my memory. In the books, he does some killing, and that's with a crossbow. So he's happy to to roll up his sleeves and get dirty when he needs to. Josh, the episode opens with Bran following the three eyed Raven in his dream. I have to say that this stuff is more interesting on the rewatch than it probably is the first time through. Yeah, well, I I loved this because you know now that we know what we know about Bran's power and what he's able to do when he's like in these visions like he's interacting with moments often you know like he's there for the Hodor of it all when Willis becomes Hodor and that's potentially his fault by connecting two different versions of the same guy we've seen him in the Tower of Joy screaming at Ned Stark and Ned Stark hears him Uh, so we know that that Bran has this power to hop into the past maybe even the future a little bit if he did indeed see Cersei Lannister setting the Sept of Baelor on wildfire. Um, So it made me wonder, seeing this vision where Bran is walking around Winterfell as a child, chasing down the three-eyed raven uh, to pull a quote from Twin Peaks, is this future or is this past? Uh, I don't know. Is it future? Is it past? Is it just a dream? What's going on here with this vision? I don't know. He just seems like that the raven is calling him. The raven is calling him for sure. And this has been you know this is the crux of Bran's journey and like seeing a vision like this is going to really stick with him and make him think about am I being pulled towards something am I being summoned for something and it's even more explicit in the book the first time he encounters a vision like this and he has this incredible vision of what Westeros looks like from the top down Um, so he's going to feel he's going to feel like some sort of destiny pull starting with this and not towards the video game though I'm sure Bran would get a kick out of that as well. Josh, it's not often that I would say that the most valuable player in any Game of Thrones episode is a character that is off screen. But by my count, we have uh, three different characters talking about the great Roz of the Winterfell brothel. Oh, yes. Roz. It is a rah-rah for Roz this week. She is getting name-checked left and right by Theon Greyjoy is recommending Roz to Tyrion. Tyrion says, I already know Roz. No big deal. Uh, And we also hear about Roz from Jon Snow, who confesses to Samuel Tarly. Sam, you're not the the only one who who hasn't gone all the way. I know I look like maybe I have, but uh, I'm, I'm just like you, John the Virgin. Yeah. And coming we, to the CW very soon. <laughs> what do you think of John and Sam's uh, locker room talk as they are cleaning up the mess hall? Yeah, not super flattering for these guys. I got to say, not one of their brighter moments for sure. Uh, but John and Sam are just, you know, they're feeling each other out. They're getting on the same page. Sam really excited to talk about this. Yeah, stuff. this was Sam's attempt at some humor during this scene. I was alone in a room with a naked girl. Didn't know where to put it. <laughs> nice try, Sam. Get out of here. With that. Nice Stop try. It. Nice try. Yeah, stick him with the pointy end. That's how. Uh, that's what Jon Snow always says. Uh, yeah, I. Th- I think uh, this. This scene's kind of great in retrospect, knowing that Sam enters his service with the Night's Watch. Feeling so, uh, you know, feeling so anti this one rule about celibacy, knowing that he is going to go on to like go out of his way to kind of have this star crossed romance or this wall crossed. They could not hold him back with Gilly. Yeah. You know, he's a romantic at heart from the jump. uh, And that's something that's certainly going to bear out for the character where he's so far through seven seasons is one of the few characters who has been allowed to have a happy and stable relationship. The fact that Sam and Gilly are at Winterfell as of the season seven finale, as the Night King and the White Walkers have crossed through the wall makes me very worried that one or both of them could die as soon as the final season premiere. But for now, let's just think about the happy stuff. You know, it's a it's a nice future is in store for Sam Tarley. Okay, Ned is going to have a confrontation with Cersei in this episode. It does seem at first that Cersei is coming to uh, make amends with Ned, but the conversation inevitably is going to go into a uh, dark direction. Can you explain to me what Ned means here? You're just a soldier, aren't you? Take your orders and you carry on. I suppose it makes sense. Your older brother was trained to lead and you were trained to follow. 
I was also trained to kill my enemies, Your Grace. As was I. Is Ned just coming out here and saying that I'm going to kill you? I mean, effectively, yeah, right? Like I That think wasn't it, a good move. <laughs> I, think that, I think that Ned, you know... Ned is not the sharpest Valyrian sword in the uh, in the armory. You know, I think that he is a guy who wears his heart on his sleeve uh, and apparently will end up wearing his head on a spike uh, because of it. And I, I think that, you know, King's Landing, which uh, you have always said, Rob, is your favorite location on the show, because this is where like this is where like Game of Thrones Survivor is played. This is where the scheming and the, the plotting and the wheeling and the dealing. This is where it all goes down. And there's a lot of of circular talk and there's a lot of double meaning and double entendres and just like hiding and masking what it is you really mean. And there are some true experts in this field here in King's Landing. Ned's not really one of them. And I mean, this is a scene where Ned and Cersei are talking around something that they both know, like this growing sense of conflict between houses Stark and Lannister. And they're talking around it. And Ned feels like he is going to have her number. He feels like he is going to have the Lannisters cornered before much longer and this is also the same guy who says let him look you know when he's going around to just like walk into the blacksmiths and talk to Gendry and walk out of there thinking that he has found King Robert's bastard this is not a guy who cares much for subtlety or stealth and no one here is accusing Ned of being great at that stuff and therefore being somebody who should be surviving this situation there is like a very character born reason why Ned Stark is not going to survive season one because just you know he is presented as your protagonist he's the person who you're spending the most time with in these first nine episodes of the show but he's also somebody who's a little bit of a dummy when it comes to the political maneuvering and it's on full display here and he's just giving Cersei every reason in the world to be very 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 deeply suspicious and concerned about this guy right I mean he's telling her I'm coming for you I'm coming coming for your crown you're my target you may be in power but I am actively leading this investigation against you no Hugh's not in power anymore (laughs) Hugh's dead yeah He's gone. Okay. Josh, you mentioned how I love King's Landing, and a big part of that is because I have always loved Littlefinger. But I do have to say that the rewatch is maybe dropping Littlefinger down a few pegs in my mind as we are watching what he was up to from the beginning. Because as I watched the show the first time through, I said, oh, wow, here's Littlefinger, master manipulator. He is the guy who's going to come out on top here. But now, ultimately knowing how it will work out for Littlefinger and watching his actions, I kind of feel like uh, this guy is maybe just a real creep. <laughs> you don't like how he's close talking Sansa Stark? Okay, you don't. Let's you, set that up because <laughs> this is so bizarre on the rewatch. The you know real first encounter of Littlefinger with Sansa Stark that at the hands tournament he plops himself down, sits right next to Sansa and his eventual killer Arya, and starts talking to them. And then right after we see uh, Sir Hugh murdered in the joust, he goes right into telling this story. Has anyone ever told you the story of the mountain and the hound? Lovely little tale of brotherly love. Ew. Like, wait, why are you being such a creep about this? And first off, who asked you about the story of the mountain and the hound? (laughs) He's just volunteering. He's very excited to see Sansa Stark. You know, I think um, maybe the biggest surprise of all of this for me is that you're surprised that Littlefinger's a creep? (laughs) Listen to how detailed he goes into with this story. How does he even know all this stuff? The hound was just a pup. Six years old, maybe. Gregor, a few years older, already a big lad, already getting a bit of a reputation. Some lucky boys just born with a talent for violence. Like, these are little girls. What are you being such a weirdo? 
I mean, this must have been like <laughs> formative stuff for Sansa and especially Arya. Like her first impression of Littlefinger is like, man, that's a guy I want to kill someday. <laughs> like this guy, like I should probably take him out eventually. Uh, not a not a great look. And I and I also think that it's kind of uh, it's another funny one in retrospect where you know that the Stark sisters are going to be Littlefinger's undoing, and all he's doing is talking to Sansa. He's paying no mind to Arya whatsoever. <laughs> Right. What a mistake. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the ending of this tale is uh, pretty amazing also. There aren't very many people who know that story. I won't tell anyone, I promise. No, please don't. Yeah, please don't. <laughs> please don't. And then what, what a podcast can't convey <laughs> is what happens on screen is, is Littlefinger just like shimmies like <laughs> off screen out of view in like this like clean, elegant move of just like, like slow, like, like he's on a dolly, just like being like removed <laughs> from the shot. Uh, it's like that moment in The Wedding Singer when John Lovitz goes he's losing his mind <laughs> and i'm reaping all the benefits and just the curtain just slowly closes over his face like that's the exact thing that's happening with little finger here it's so odd it's a very very odd scene for sure <laughs> With his creepy stories. Also, Josh, in terms of dagger watch, okay, da- Valerian steel dagger, last scene, uh, Ned's office. So, you know, ultimately, this is going to make its way back to Littlefinger. Uh, I just want to, you know, uh, track that as we go along here. Also, uh, we mentioned the scene between Viserys and the handmaiden, Daria, in the scene in the bathtub, which is some classic uh, Game of Thrones sex position, as Viserys is ex- Explaining the uh, something that might be uh, a little bit clinical in terms of the history of the dragons. A lot of stuff going on with the candle in the bathtub. Daria, the handmaiden, mentions some things that she has seen with the knowledge of what's to come in the future. We can piece together a little bit more of what she's talking about. All right, let's hear it. Okay, so she says that she has seen many things. She has seen a man from a shy with a dragon glass dagger. Now, one, I don't know how impressive that is. I mean, it's pretty impressive. The people from a shy are fairly uh, reclusive and remote. I mean, that's like Melisandre and her people. And a shy is very difficult to get to. It's fun to say. It's fun to think about, but it's hard to visit and it's hard to travel from there. Okay. So if she's seen somebody from a shy, that's, you know, that's fairly. Do we have any theories who the man from a shy with a dragon glass dagger could be? No, no real theories about who that could be. But I wonder, Rob, if this is going to be the subject of one of the successor shows of one of the Game of Thrones spinoffs, because we are currently encountering, Rob, the first episode of Game of Thrones written by Brian Cogman, who is like the third in command of the Game of Thrones writers squad and has been announced since our last podcast, I believe, as one of the people who is working on one of these five different potential Game of Thrones spinoffs what if it's about the man from a shy with a dagger of dragon glass wow. wouldn't that be fun yeah that would be great so some sort of csi a shy <laughs> cs <laughs> that'd be great i don't know how you spell that but csi sounds like a great show second thing that Daria has seen <laughs> a man Terrible. who can change his face like he's changing clothes. So this is one of the faceless men we can presume. Yeah, we're we're setting that up here for sure. Uh, you know, is it Jake and Hagar? Who can say? You wouldn't know. Is Jake and Hagar even Jake and Hagar? What's he doing in a bathhouse? I don't know. Doing bad things. You know, whatever the job requires. And then finally, she says she has seen a pirate who wears his weight in gold and has colored silk sails. Is this Salvatore San? It could be Salvatore San for sure. Uh, I was hoping, like, I was trying to, like, open it up in my mind. Like, could this be, like, a very early Euron reference? But I don't think that's really possible. This doesn't sound like Euron style. Maybe he went through we a phase. Really- we never really knew him to wear his weight in gold, although he does look huskier in season six versus season seven. Maybe, maybe. So you, that would have been too much gold, you're saying? So he had yeah. to get rid of the gold yeah. when he put on the extra weight? He does love gold, though. <laughs> so. Okay. 
He's a fan. Uh, we see a scene of Arya practicing her water dancing in this episode. A little bit uh, shades of like the karate kid as she's like balancing on one leg. And she has to do everything that Syria Pharrell says in terms of being yeah, a water she's dancer. Pra- she's practicing her lady crane kick. Yes. Yeah, well, well done. <laughs> Took a minute. <laughs> yeah, Took a second. Lady Crane. <laughs> okay. R.I.P. Lady Crane. Poor went out. But Ned talks about what his kids might go on to do. And so she is talking about with Ned about Bran and, uh, you know, what he uh, may or may be able to still do. Ned Stark says Bran one day might raise castles like Bran the Builder. Yeah, that's right. We're getting a brand the builder shout out here, which is something that we have wondered about. Like, could we be driving towards some possible future where brand gets shot back to the past and becomes the brand and the builder of legend? It'd be cool. There's like a lot of these dots that you can connect. And like, maybe it's just a reference to, you know, what he's named after, who he's named after. And, you know, some sort of like kind of like, um, you know, some sort of setup of something that brand could do at some point down the line maybe he will be involved in repairing the wall at some point or maybe literally this dude will be brand the builder at some point you just never know yeah and ned talks to aria about what her future may hold in terms of that she is going to go on to have a bunch of kids who will go on to be knights and whatnot and aria gives the very famous game of thrones line which is sort of burned in everybody's brain that's not me. <laughs> that's not that's not me. Yeah. Nobody, 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 nobody <laughs> remembers this moment. Yeah. Zero people remember this moment except <laughs> for now they remember it because there is this very odd line. Uh, that's not you in season seven when Arya encounters Nymeria again for the first time since she threw rocks at Nymeria. And mm-hmm. she says when Nymeria refuses to join up with Arya again and rides away, she says, that's not you. Nobody remembered that. Not even Arya. It's unrealistic. It's ridiculous. There's no way. There's no way. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Frustrating moment. Frustrating moment to revisit. I, I hate this line. The whole, that's not me. Get out of here with that. <laughs> All right. Let's do a couple of uh, quick things. Josh, how many women do you suspect were in the room with King Robert? <laughs> we know it's more than five, right? Apparently. <laughs> I only had three counted and then there were still women talking in there. I think that you probably just because it's the Game of Thrones number, you got to go seven. I think, seven. you know, seven minutes in something or other. Yeah, I think yeah. Uh, I think that's probably what we were looking at. One for <laughs> each of the gods. What happened to each woman as she ran out of the room to excuse herself? Yeah, I don't know. It's like they were all uh, they were all just telling funny jokes and laughing about stuff. Somebody smelled like blackberries, apparently. Blackberry jam. Yeah, blackberry jam. Sorry, my mistake. (laughs) Forgot that there is a, a sugary component. Yeah, Robert is great on this uh, rewatch. I think an underappreciated Game of Thrones character. I love before the tournament is going to start. It's like, is this tournament going to start yet uh, before I I piss myself? (laughs) (laughs) As if that's just an inevitability. That like, it's not even like a complaint of like, I got to pee. I should have gone to the bathroom. Should I go now? Like, should I get up and leave? It's like, no, that's not a concern. He's just going to pee himself. Like that's happening in the future. That's where he's going. (laughs) Uh, Josh, did you have anything from this episode you wanted to talk about? No, it's it's great to see, uh, you know, we're in Viastoth Rock for the first time, and we're I don't think we're really going to spend a ton of time here again until season six, maybe a little bit more in season one. Uh, but it just looks so different. Like, the, the set design of Game of Thrones has really evolved over the years. Like, this kind of has that, like, Wizard of Oz stage quality to it. Like, you could, you know, like, you could imagine the soundstage where, like, the, the outskirts outside of some of these tents are. Uh, it's just, like, the production value has gone up so much mm-hmm. um but, and I, the but budget. even yeah and the budget and like even you know though like there aren't big war scenes in season one and like you think about how much game of thrones has pushed things forward in that way watching the tournament stuff like and we're gonna get even into even more of that next week that stuff is fun like there's just like these fun little notes that like you can't really have on game of thrones anymore just given where the story is it's just fun to to go back and and see that stuff um of course first appearance of 
Braun, not yet of the Blackwater. Uh, his first scene of the entire series was in this episode where Tyrion tosses him a dragon because Braun is clever enough to volunteer his room to Tyrion. He says, clever man. So that's the start of a beautiful friendship. It was great to see uh, the very first Braun sighting of our rewatch. Also, one other moment that I really enjoy in this episode is after John decides that, okay, Samwell has had enough. So he enlists the help of Pip and Gren to go and mess with Rasta alongside Ghost. And uh, they wake, wake him up in the middle of the night and tell him nobody touches Sam. And then Alistair Thorne is trying to get everybody to fight Sam and nobody is laying a hand on him. And uh, I'm not sure if it's uh, I think it's Gren who just like takes the fall against Sam in a very funny scene. Yeah, that's a good scene. And that's also another scene that's that's cool to watch on the rewatch because we we hate Rast. We don't like that guy. We've kind of forgotten Rast at the point that we're at on Game of Thrones. Like, do you remember anything about him and how he dies, Rob? No, I actually don't. Yeah, so Rast is going to end up being one of the mutineers of the Night's Watch at Craster's Keep in season four. And this guy who has been scared into submission of not picking on Sam by the sight of a direwolf, by the sight of ghosts specifically, is on a one-way collision course with Ghost eventually, where Ghost is going to be unleashed on, on Rast at one point later on down the line when the Night's Watch take back Craster's Keep and kill the mutineers. Rast is going to get a face full of ghost and that's going to be how he's taken off of the scene so cool to see that uh that planted here all right josh do we have a hashtag for this week's rewatch <sighs> see a shy see a shy great i think uh, that's just a shy with a c in front of it okay and i won't even attempt any sort of and a shy is or anything like that <laughs> <laughs> don't laugh don't but don't, you, don't but you me. did and it was good i liked it okay uh josh uh very fun stuff going through everything very much looking forward to watching the little finger creep watch as we continue <laughs> through these uh seven seasons <laughs> Yeah, as we keep creeping along the King's Road towards season eight. <laughs> Craster's Creep Watch. Yeah. Craster's, <laughs> Craster's Keep Walk. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we'll be watching Littlefinger. We've got our eye on everybody, Rob, uh, as we're as we're charting these characters' earliest days and working our way up to the present of Game of Thrones. It's a okay. fun walk down memory lane. All right. Keep tabs on everything Josh Wiggler is working on for The Hollywood Reporter. When you follow him on Twitter, he is at Round Howard. I'm at Rob Sesternino. Of course, you could subscribe to our Game of Thrones podcast. Keep going on with our rewatch every Tuesday at postshowrecaps.com slash G-O-T iTunes. Josh, anything else? Nothing else except for the fact that we've got some awesome podcasts happening here on Post Show Recaps right now, baby. Yeah, we've got a ton of, of stuff going on. Ton we've of got stuff. some Curb Your Enthusiasm action happening, Rob. Yes, and I'm actually very excited about Star Trek Discovery, Josh, that the first two episodes were sort of like a two-part premiere which were split up but i felt like that the third episode was a bit of a reset in terms of what they were doing and i'm actually uh, pretty excited about the direction in which uh the discovery is headed so if you want to check that out you can subscribe to our star trek podcast feed go to postshowrecaps.com slash star trek and then of course uh you get everything that we do on postshowrecaps.com including our coverage of curb your enthusiasm uh, which kicked off on Sunday night as well, all on postshowrecaps.com, including also uh, Fear the Walking Dead coverage, Josh. Mr. Robot coming back very soon. Antonio Mazzaro and I are going to be doing a bunch of Mr. Robot podcasts once that season starts up and even in the days ahead of that premiere, which is happening October 11th, I believe, is the premiere of season three of Mr. Robot. So tons of Mr. Robot coverage coming your way. Proper Walking Dead, the flagship Walking Dead is rearing its head later this month as well. Stranger Things is popping up. I haven't figured out an exact plan for Stranger Things yet, but we'll be, we'll be doing some podcasting around that. So October, going to be a big month for the Post Show Recaps. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Looking forward to reading your comments on PostShowRecaps.com. Take care, everybody. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.